0: Our reading today comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord.
1: So today's passage is the famous passage on the Lord's Prayer. One of the things that we like to point out with this prayer is it wasn't originally intended to be a formula for prayer that is not examined. What do I mean by that? I mean that there is a style of praying in which you just read words from a page and you do not examine or partner with that sort of prayer. And I want to just introduce you to a term that I found helpful from the Puritans. They describe it as prayerless prayer. And that prayerless prayer is a style of prayer in which you pray in an external form, but your heart and your soul are not joined to your prayers. If you've ever been kind of cold or dead, spiritually speaking, on your way to a Sunday worship service or a prayer meeting, at the first few minutes of your time in that corporate gathering, you may feel like, why am I even singing this? Why am I even opening my mouth? And I would encourage you that you ought to, in that moment, ask God to revive your soul. David says, bless the Lord, O my soul. He commands himself to join his soul prayer with the corporate setting. And so this is really an understanding of what Jesus wants for us to engage in, in the place of prayerful prayers. That is, a soul or a heart which is communing with God in the place of prayer prayer. And Jesus begins his teaching on private spiritual devotion as well as as the right exercise of God's tools of grace with a commandment to not be hypocritical in your praying, in your giving, in your worship. And so Jesus immediately confronts the actions of the Pharisees and those who are hypocrites, And he does this in order to explain a few things. One is this notion that God is a rewarder. And we're going to hopefully, I I hope to dismantle a common, unwritten, or uncodified spiritual principle of the American church, which is that we ought to worship God for duty's sake because he's worthy alone. And we completely forget that the teachings of Christ are almost exclusively focused on reward. This is a very important principle as you are learning to walk as a Christian before God. If you do not understand the principle of rewards, you cannot understand the parables. The parable of the the talents makes no sense if you do not understand that he comes to evaluate and to reward. So I want to look at Jesus' focus on reward. Then I want to look at the prayer itself, beginning with the nature of the Father and his name, which is to be hallowed or to be held as holy, And then I want to look at the kingdom, and then finally these three elements, the daily bread, the daily forgiveness, and the daily war against temptation as something that is a daily Christian necessity. And by necessity, I mean something which cannot be dispensed with. It can't be removed without great loss. So Jesus continues to teach from the mountain. It's important that you understand this in context of what we've seen the last two weeks, that this is part of Jesus's delivery of what we call the law of Christ. That is, not that it is setting aside the law of Moses, but rather it is the full teaching by Jesus himself of what it means for disciples to walk in purity before their Father. And he continues on moving from a number of ethical and judicial interactions with the law we saw that commandment against adultery, we saw the commandment against murder, and we noticed how Jesus was moving through the second table of the law, the second set of commandments. Those commandments which have to do with the relationship of a man to his fellow man. And Jesus continues, and now he begins to discuss the first table of the law. And the way in which we love God is spelled out in these passages. If you do not practice your righteousness in secret, but only practice it openly, then that is false worship, false love. It is hypocrisy. And so Jesus begins to give his disciples an understanding of the danger of practicing their righteousness before men. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness in order to be seen by them. What's so interesting is that just before this, when Jesus had been, had, told them that they were a city on a hill, he says that they ought to live in such a way as that men glorify the Father. And some people think that these are contradictions, but actually they're not at all. See, there is a righteousness which lives before men or operates before men alone in order to get the glory from other men. We call this fearing man we call this hypocrisy and yet Jesus commands that we do our righteousness not in order to be seen but in public there's there's a, a seemingly antithetical but it but not at all and so Jesus is warning against a style of worship that only or a style of worshiping God that only does something in public to be seen by God this is extremely important in fact The Puritans would speak about these things so much to the degree as they would basically make it a qualification before one could even come to the the office of becoming a pastor or becoming an elder in a church after he could prove that he was living a life of private prayer. And the way in which they examined him was they would pick anywhere in the scripture and they would ask him to preach from it, expecting him to have already wrestled with the topic and already prayed through the topic. It's such an interesting idea to me that they valued private prayer so much so that they actually would exclude people from communion if they were not leading their families in worship outside of the Sunday meeting. Now, that sounds extreme, but it wasn't a harsh thing in their eyes. Now, this is a different cultural context, and I'm not saying that we're doing that, but oh, that we could and that it wouldn't affect anyone. If you wanna know what real revival looks like, it looks like every family engaging in private worship before God. I, I've, I've heard a number of pastors and various materials online and they talk about what are the seeds for revival that you need to sow? What do you need to do? And every time I hear this list of things, and I said, well, that is revival. You know, they're, they're talking about establishing private devotion, establishing true worship, but those things, if they were set at right, Those would be the effects of a revival. And so we are in deep need of Christ even enabling us to do the very things he teaches us to do. Interestingly, Jesus connects the failure to cultivate godly piety, that is piety, true worship in private, with a loss of reward. Look at this clearly. He says, if you do this, then you have no reward. Why would Jesus be saying this if it wasn't implicit that that's a bad thing? It destroys all notions of Christian duty for duty's sake. And when God rewards someone, he rewards them openly. This is kind of an interesting aspect of the English standard, but they leave off a word here. Now, in most cases, your translations are very faithful. And I don't like to talk about the text underneath the text too much because it's fairly academic. But in this verse here, we see that Jesus says at the end of verse he says so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees you in secret will reward you and almost every translation save for the ESV has the word openly what is the point of God rewarding you openly is it a merit badge No, because if it's a merit badge, then it's exactly what Jesus says. Do not practice your righteousness in order to be seen by other men. So why is Jesus telling them that it's important that they do this in order that they would receive a reward and that it would be done and given to them openly? It is for this specific purpose, that God's rewards for true righteousness always have a way of becoming known. And the way of becoming known on a person of God's blessing is not for their own selfish use, but to enable them for radical sacrifice and giving for their fellow Christian and for those outside of the faith. You see, everything that God has given you, whether it be your money, your time, your family, your finances, any sort of understanding of wisdom, business, vocation, art, culture, what have you, all of it is to be used for glorifying God and for the betterment of your fellow man. If you become convinced of the reward and you turn inward, which is the majority of the prosperity preaching in our culture today, then you have just completely transformed the purpose of what Jesus is getting at here. And I I liken it to the understanding, I got this from another pastor, but it's good enough, and he didn't he didn't come up with the illustration himself, that that Jesus describes the Holy Spirit in you as a river and not a lake. The Dead Sea is dead because it has water coming into it, but it never has anything flowing out of it. That is why it is constantly salty, because the water comes into it, the water evaporates, and it leaves the salt behind. This is a picture of those who turn the purpose of God counter to what it's supposed to be and turn inwardly to spend it on themselves, so to speak. Now, this isn't just money. This is time. This is emotional resource. This is spiritual wisdom and understanding. We ought to be in the business of spreading that reward so that men would see and glorify the Father. See how we've synchronized or... or uh, harmonize these two ideas that Jesus tells them to be a city on a hill so that men would acknowledge the Father and, and hear, don't do your righteousness before men in order to be seen by them. These harmonize. They're not actually disjoint. So what else could be the motivation for Jesus's teachings here? Think about it. If Jesus did not want you to have a reward in order to bless others, then why is he warning you that you're not going to get the reward. The implicit presupposition, the idea that has to be in place for Jesus' words to make sense is that rewards are good things that ought to be sought after, not simply rejected as well I don't want I don't want to get prideful. I don't wanna I don't want to be advanced and then be promoted beyond my brothers. I just want everyone to be equal. See, this is the great problem of social equality and the sort of revolutions that take place in cultures where you have this elevation of this idol called equality because it just doesn't match at all with the kingdom. God takes the talent from the one who didn't invest his talent and he gives it to the one who had five and gained five more. That's the opposite of the spirit of our age. And so the kingdom is is so different from the way that most of us think and live. It's hard for us to begin to walk in relationship with God in his kingdom according to kingdom principles. But nevertheless, it's clear in the passage of Scripture. What could be the primary means of God's rewarding other than a greater capacity to experience him and to use that blessing for others? What sort of reward could be a true reward? Because the rest of the New Testament says that if you gain extreme riches, that it's a snare and a trap. Paul says that those who seek after riches pierce themselves with many pains. You see, this isn't what the prosperity preachers teach, that God wants to bless you in order to prove that you're his child. God wants to bless you in order to make you a more effective member of those who are advancing his kingdom and bringing his message of reconciliation to the broken, the hurting, and the lost. This is why God gives you anything at all, is in order to, to, by your use, to glorify him in it. Verse 5, he then confirms this, saying again, When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Notice how he says they've received a reward. What is their reward? Their reward is nothing more than the praise of other men. And that is nothing. The praise of other men ultimately will come to maybe five moments of thought in a group of people. Maybe one or two good memories a few weeks later of that thing. Or potentially if you do something extreme and you're one of these, you know, Uh, tycoon philanthropist, you'll have a bronze bust in a Boston square somewhere, and it'll just rust away. Brothers and sisters, those who practice their righteousness in public alone, with no thought to being seen by their father in secret, receive a very small reward, and that's the opinion of men and not the opinion of the father. This is absolutely no small part of godly Christian piety, but is an authentic mark of those who walk with God. Hebrews 11.6, this is outside of our passage today, but I just want to impress this upon you because this notion of not seeking God for a reward is such a pervasive, unwritten doctrine in the American church that this sounds completely foreign to many people. But the scriptures tell us that we have to seek God as one who rewards those who seek him. Hebrews eleven six, without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. You see, if you don't understand the giving of himself to you as the reward, then according to Hebrews eleven six, you can't even come to him at all. Now, am I saying that you're not a Christian? No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that God has a better way that he wants to bring you into uh, maturity. And that sort of maturity accords with understanding he does really want to reward me. I ought to seek him in order to receive that reward, which is namely himself, but always will be manifested in tangible ways. The only way to obey Christ's command, therefore, is to integrate private prayer as an aspect or foundation stone in your daily walk. And we see this by the commandment that he gives in the middle of the prayer, which we'll get to in a second. Christ then immediately teaches his disciples how they ought to pray, first contrasting it with prayerless prayers. He says in verse 7, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases. That is what Christ is saying about those who pray, and do not join their heart and soul and person with the words that come out of their mouth. You see, the Gentiles had forms of religion They would pass around formulas and books of prayers. Now, I actually love books of prayers. There are two books of prayers that I deeply love and use in my daily life. One of them is a book called The Valley of Vision, which is a collection of prayers. Another one is The Book of Common Prayer out of the Anglican Church. Another one is Tim Keller's book, The Songs of Jesus. Each of these are prayer books And the prayer books contain written prayers, but brothers and sisters, it's no less of a godly thing to use a written prayer in a prayer book than this prayer right here as a pattern. What you ought to do, whether you're praying spontaneously from your head or whether you're praying with an inspiration or a launching point of a prayer that another saint has already written, you ought to join your soul and your heart with the words that you're praying. In fact, I would encourage you, if this is a foreign concept to you, just go to Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the council, and you turn that into a prayer. You say, God, help me. I often am someone who walks according to the wisdom of men, but he is like the one who is planted by a river, God, I'm not planted often in your word. You turn it into a prayer, and you join your heart with the words that are being said. Jesus' commands here are not a condemnation of all written prayers. And if you believe that, then you cannot ever sing corporate worship songs at our church anymore. What I'm trying to do is dismantle these, these mindsets that attend the modern evangelical church, which completely forsake the necessity of private prayer and therefore because they they do that they don't have any ammunition if you will but they're totally fine saying private or public prayers in the forms of song they just reject those forms of prayers which don't have any music set to them but actually god has given his people a mighty grace in giving the the soul that is trapped in deadness and a lack of inspiration ammunition to use as a launching point into the place of private prayer. I would absolutely commend you. If this is something that you've never wrestled with, get a hold of the book of Psalms. Get a hold of the book of Proverbs and even take a few verses and use them as a launching point to prayer. Your mind and your heart are not the source of inspiration for your communion with God, but rather It is at the entry of his word which brings light and understanding to all. If you are simply relying on inspiration to spontaneously arise from your heart, then you don't understand what is filling your heart often. And the point is that Jesus is not condemning the use of words. He's condemning the empty use of words. In fact, you can even pray in an inspirational way or from a spontaneity and yet not be joining your heart with what you're praying. You know what that looks like? That looks like the form of prayer before a meal. Have you ever experienced this in your home? You pray and you're like, Lord Jesus bless this food, amen. That is hypocritical. Because what it does is it, it teaches you and your, whoever you're with, your spouse, children, family, whoever, it teaches you that it's necessary that we give a token to God. But it's not necessary that we give our heart to God. I would encourage you if you, uh, you know, I've done restaurant prayers. I don't like them. Because it, in that very moment, I can feel my flesh is like this, this cheeseburger is getting cold. The crust on this sandwich is perfect. There's enough moisture and enough heat, and it's, it's hard on the outside, but soft in the middle, and yet I cannot give the Lord 10 seconds of heart attention. You see, I'm not trying to lay something on you. You don't have to pray before each meal. I think it's a good thing, but the point is this, that we have forms of religion, but we deny the power, that we often treat God with a token of worship instead of the reality. And that's exactly what Jesus is warning against. If you do the form of religion without the reality, then you have no reward and your father is just dishonored in that fashion. He says, do not be like them for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Therefore, Christians, those who have been adopted by the father, do not earn their hearing because they already are adopted. and It is because of the adoption that they have in Christ that they are able to be heard. Christ teaches us, therefore, to pray in him. See, he says that these prayers are to be done to the Father, but beyond all of that is this idea that we have been adopted by the Father through Christ, and it is that relationship in which we pray. You see, the, the words in Jesus' name are not a formula to tack on at the end of a prayer. Rather, they are the foundational and and ultimately theological reality that gives us any place to pray at all. We cannot address him as father unless we've been adopted in Christ. And that adoption is a spiritual reality which God alone can wrought. You see, we have this notion of us choosing God and choosing to become Christians, but that's exactly the opposite of what Jesus is describing in these circumstances. I saw this wonderful image this week, and it was, uh, it was one of these Caravaggio Renaissance paintings, and it was when, when Saul falls off of his donkey on the road, and, he said, and the caption, it's a meme, If you know what a meme is, you might find this funny, but it it says, there I was when I was on my way to murder Christians when I freely chose God. (laughs) The notion is that the Christian relationship is something that God transacts. You can't adopt yourself into a family. And so the adoption, that understanding of that communion, that position in which we pray is so vital. If you don't understand that God chose you, you can't really pray with any confidence because you're not sure that he hears. Parents of, of young kids who are old enough to walk and, and open the fridge know this, that most of the time your kids don't ask to get something out of the fridge. Some of you have very interesting homes in which you do, but the one in which I was raised we didn't ask our father before we got into the fridge. Now, if you have a different relationship with your, the rules of your home, that's perfectly fine, but it doesn't fit the illustration. The point is, I don't go into someone else's fridge, uh, although I did yesterday, but that's another story. I don't, I don't go into someone else's fridge without first being invited, right? Think about that, showing up at somebody's house and opening the fridge, I mean, who does that? The point is, when you're a child, you have access to the things of your parents as long as they're safe. The illustration is this, that without a confidence that the Father hears you, you will have no zeal for private prayer. Because you won't even know that you're heard, and you won't know the significance of what you've been invited into, that you would be invited into by God the releasing of his kingdom, which we're going to get to. He says at the very beginning of this pattern he says our father in heaven hallowed be your name he teaches that our first petition after a uh, after the salutation of calling him our father that the first petition would answer the chief problem in the earth which is that god's name is not treated as holy but that men all throughout the earth think of God as little, light, and nothing. And in fact, some of them delude themselves claiming to not acknowledge his existence, and yet God has made it plain and evident to him. This orientation teaches us that all of our blessing is found in the magnification of his glory and worship. That if we are to be truly blessed, it is not receiving more money, time, resources, talents, better jobs, more children, what have you our true blessing is found that his name would be revered in society as a whole, that his name would be acknowledged and worshiped in every sphere of life around us, that his name would be hallowed, would be treated as holy. And that is our chief and first petition at all times. Everything that we pray for as Christians ought to be able to be reconciled with that notion that this would cause God's name to be holy. God, would you help open this person's eyes so that he would acknowledge you as holy? God, would you stop this law from taking place in our country because it does not acknowledge you as holy? That is the chief aim of all Christian prayer, that God's name would be revered on the earth as it is in heaven. He directly connects that hallowing or that treating as holy of his name as the petition for his kingdom to come and his will be done. If you read verse 9 and 10 as one one set of words, one idea, one sentence, it says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's proposition one. Your kingdom come and your will be done. His name is hallowed in heaven. His kingdom is perfect in heaven. His will is done perfectly in heaven. It is to be prayed that God's name would be hallowed on the earth, as it's hallowed in heaven, that God's will would be done on earth as it's done in heaven. God's kingdom, therefore, which we are asking for it to come, is that sphere in which his will is lovingly and willingly enacted. God's kingdom is the realm or sphere, the experience and environment, the atmosphere and, uh, if you will, the biosphere in which his will is done perfectly, willingly, lovingly. You see, it's not enough that on the final day, all the knees of every man who's ever lived will bow before Jesus Christ. We want them to bow now. And we want them to bow now, not just in some authoritarian imposition of God coming in a cataclysmic way and destroying all those who are not Christians yet. We want the world to be transformed that the earth would invite heaven to come. That's what we're praying for in that song we've sung, sung today. If you haven't been here the last two Fridays, we sang that song two weeks in a row. And I, I, I don't know if we'll sing it that many more times in the next few meetings, because I don't wanna burn out that song, it's too good to lose. But the point is that we want the world to be transformed. You see, many Christians ask for favor from God when Jesus was the one who showed us that the heavens are open. The heavens which open over him in baptism fulfills multiple petitions in the prophets that God would remove the bronze heavens over Israel that they had received as a result of their sin. And Jesus comes and the heavens are open. In the narrative, it doesn't say they close back up. And the point is that Christians who are forgiven of sin and anointed with the holy spirit are walking just like christ christ knew no sin he had no guilt before his father and he was anointed the spirit came and rested upon him and remained the point is this that we are asking god to open up the earth we're saying we want your will to come your kingdom to come and to be done here as it's done in heaven his will therefore is done in heaven Perfectly, completely, lovingly, and totally. And there's a ton of more adverbs that we could add. Wonderfully, spectacularly, spectacularly, joyfully, amazingly. That is how his will is done in heaven. There is no opposition to his will in heaven. You see, the enemy and his demonic forces have no authority in the highest heavens. They are not in the throne room. And in fact, whenever you see them come into the throne room, like in the book of Job, it's always at a result of their summoning and God superimposing his will over their plans. I've been reading through the story of Joseph, and what's so amazing to me about it is the entire time God has told the end of the story from the beginning, and he causes everything to come to pass, and the the brothers who murdered Joseph come and bow, and they don't even know they're bowing. Isn't that amazing? They don't even know who they're bowing to. And they're, if you know the story, if you don't know the story, I'm sorry, you can, you can learn it. It's a very short story. But the point is that God is bringing about his will, and we want to partner with him in doing that on the earth. That his will would be done in this way on earth is our aim, and it is our aim both in private prayer, corporate worship, and our working. We do not simply pray for those things which we do not also work for. Think about that. You never pray for something that you don't also willingly say, I would also participate in that. When God is is describing the various things that his people are to pray for, there are always things that impact them and that they ought to join with. For example, if you're asking God for a better job, wouldn't it imply that you would willingly take the job and receive it and then work in it? You're always asking for things that you would hopefully join with. God bring me wisdom, and then he you know, wants you to read your Bible more. The answer on your side of the equation is to sit down at your Bible every day and begin to read it. The point is that God asks us to pray for things that we ought to also partner with him in and work for. God's goal, therefore, in unfolding redemption would be that all of Christ's enemies would be defeated before the final day. This is controversial to to some of you because I don't know if that was confirmation or rebuke. (laughs) The scriptures say that on the final day in 1 Corinthians 15, as Paul is describing the resurrection from the dead, it says that heaven must retain or receive Christ until all of his enemies are defeated and the last enemy to to be defeated is death. And what that means is, is that on the final day before the resurrection of the dead, death is not yet defeated. No matter how holy or pious you or I are, we will all die. Isn't that wonderful? We will all die in a physical sense, and yet, Revelation and the epistles, they tell us that those who overcome will not be harmed, be harmed by the second death. And the last enemy to be defeated is death. Christ has already defeated death now in a sense in that he was raised from the dead. He was resurrected by the power of the Spirit, according to the will of the Father. And that victory is waiting in the wings, if you will. It's happened, and yet it hasn't spread to all those who are now in Christ and all, really all who are raised on that last day to the judgment. But before that last day, it says in First Corinthians 15, every enemy is defeated. That's what I believe the coming of God's kingdom and the spreading of his will to be done here on the earth. You see, the prayer is not that his will would be done at Grace Christian Fellowship. The prayer is not that God's will would be done on Darst Avenue. The prayer is not that God's will would be done on the east side of Dayton or even Dayton itself or the city or Ohio, or Montgomery County, the prayer is that God's will would be done on the earth. Not Jerusalem, not Israel, the earth. Not just a geographic region. And so I believe what Jesus is giving us in here, in this, in this prayer, is not only a thing to pray for, a thing to work for, but also deep understanding of what he's doing. And that understanding will translate to working with and partnering with him in those things. Finally, Christ teaches his disciples to petition the Father for three things, daily sustenance, which he identifies as bread, the forgiveness of debt, and the avoidance and deliverance from temptation. He says, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. These three things, sustenance, forgiveness, and deliverance, all of those three things are a daily necessity for Christians. What do I mean by a daily necessity? I mean without petitioning God for these things, you will be severely diminished in your Christian walk. You will be severely diminished in your Christian walk, not in a sense that you will lose your salvation, but in a sense that you will not achieve that which God is desiring to bring you into. You see, the Lord is our shepherd, and yet we have to eat. He leads us to the pastures and commands us to eat. He tells Peter, feed my sheep, and the implication is that they would swallow the food. The point is this, that God asks us to pray that he would give us these things, and it ought to be a part of our daily pattern that we would pray for them. In this petition, the final part of the prayer, we recognize God as our source of all blessings, both material and spiritual, be it food, forgiveness, or perseverance. And Christ's prayer teaches us that our daily reality is all within God. You see, you cannot receive anything unless God gives it to you. And being able to receive something from God is, is it comes along with the posture of one who receives from God willingly. That as his child, I don't have to go out and earn my bread. Now, I'm not saying you don't work a job, because I don't think Jesus is just talking about food. Why do I think that Jesus is not simply talking about food? Is that over and over again in the Gospels, we see that Jesus connects food with spiritual reality. Remember all the way back to the beginning of our season of Epiphany, the temptations that he faced, In the wilderness, what was the first temptation? To turn stones into bread. And that temptation was overcome because Jesus understood and told the devil to his face, quoting the word of God as his authority. He said, my food, uh, sorry, in this place, he says that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. At a later point, they don't have any food and they're out ministering outside of a city And he's not hungry, the rest of the disciples are. And they start asking each other, did somebody bring him food? And he then says, hearing in the spirit what they're saying, he then says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. You see, Christian prayer, Christian Bible reading, Christian worship, spiritual activities cannot excuse a lack of obedience in the Christian life. The will of God, which is our food, is to be done. See, we receive his word, we receive his will, and then we partner with that. Petitioning for his forgiveness recognizes the ongoing need for future grace, even as we need his grace to forgive sins not yet committed against us. You see, you do not need a brand new forgiveness all along. Every day that you go through your Christian life, it's not as if you get re-saved again, But there are sins which you have not committed and there are also sins which have not yet been committed against you and so Jesus is teaching us to weave into our prayer a formula that the Father would forgive us as we forgive to the degree and quality and expediency of our forgiveness what does that mean it means that he's teaching us to keep short accounts that we do not become those who harbor transgressions against brothers and sisters or even those outside the faith that we be we, that we become people who walk in forgiveness with each other even as we expect that forgive that sort of forgiveness from the father and then finally he teaches us that we ought to petition god for deliverance from temptation and this petitioning not only teaches us but it commands us to live as if temptation will come and that we will need something to be done about it see just as i don't have to earn my bread as a son i also cannot defeat temptation on my own many christians pray against temptation when it's already arrived and jesus is teaching us that we ought to be wise we ought to pray against temptation before it arrives so that in the moment We know what to do about it. This is exactly what Jesus is wanting to give us as his children. And this is the inheritance that we've been given. And so what I would encourage you is that this prayer model is something to begin to partner with and to weave and interact with and and, uh, experience in your daily life. We're going to close with this idea. In everything in this prayer, we see the glory of Christ. And the way that we see the glory of Christ is is manifold, but specifically this, that everything he teaches us is necessary for godliness. Everything that he teaches us here is not natural wisdom, but is the wisdom which comes from above. And finally, of course, everything that he teaches us is what he walked in and lived in. And so as we begin to hopefully amend our prayer lives in this direction, the way to do it, is to ask God to give us a greater revelation of the person and work of Christ that he did these things, that he was the one who brought the kingdom, saying it's at hand, that he was the one who at his final hour said, I have done your will. You see, Jesus is not teaching something in hypocrisy. He's not teaching like the Pharisees. He's teaching according to his nature and according to what he's done, and he's inviting us to walk as he walked. So let's pray. Father, we thank you mightily for this season. We ask you that you would give us spiritual wisdom. We also pray, Father, that you would forgive us for our lack of zeal in attending to these things. We pray that you would amend our private worship of you, that we would not be those who merely profess religion in public and never have a time of private prayer who never approach you when men cannot see. We ask, Lord, that you would forgive us for turning your blessings inward on ourselves, not using them for the sake of others. Lord, we also ask you that you would forgive us for, for, a, for low zeal and a lack of understanding that you reward those who seek you. We pray, God, that you would restore to us the wisdom of seeking godly reward and that that would become something that we actually look forward to, that we would go to you in private prayer, taking your word in our hand, petitioning that your will would be done and your kingdom would come, that you would be treated as holy in this time. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.